between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Welcome to Hither Came Conan, the podcast that's never actually seen a giant spider. And yeah, it's more than okay with that. I'm your host. My name is Steven. And, you know, I finally made peace with myself that I am never, ever, ever, ever going to have Conan's physique. I'll never have those six pack abs or the bulging biceps or even one of his many steely thews. And seriously, I'm pretty okay with that. I may not be happy with what I have, but I'm okay knowing that whatever shape I manage to get myself into, it won't be the kind that looks good in little fur trunks. With that said, today we're going to look at Conan the Barbarian, issue number 18 from Marvel Comics. This issue sports a cover date of September 1972, but it hit the stands in June. It sold for 20 cents, and it is entitled the Thing in the Temple. The story was written by Roy Thomas, with pencils by Gil Kane, inks by Dan Adkins, and the letters were by Artie Simic. Into the boat! Following the events of the previous issue, Kiri now rules Bao Sagath as Ayla, the sea goddess, with Conan and Fafnir at her side, pledged to keep her safe. Ayla is paraded through the city streets as the people cheer and celebrate and eventually the goddess and her barbarian bodyguards retire to the palace. The three chill for a bit and talk through the events from the last issue, their talk ending with Ayla informing the two warriors that they may still be in danger. The dark wizard priest Gothen may have fled with Ska, his puppet king, but she knows that the sorcerer is still somebody to worry about. Ayla then goes off to bed, leaving Conan and Fafnir to relax around the fire pit outside her room, which, she mentions, has just one entrance, the one that they are guarding. As the two mighty feud warriors talk and drink, Fafnir pokes fun at Conan for catching the eye of Ayla, who is obviously sweet on him. The two then find themselves growing drowsy, and eventually, but with more than a bit of suddenness, Fafnir falls asleep. As Conan fights to keep his eyes open, a big creepy monster creeps into the room from behind one of the wall hangings and attacks Conan, who fights through his unnatural sleepiness and kicks the monster's ass, wrapping it up in a curtain and then knocking it into the fire where it burns to death. It's at this point that Fafnir wakes, wondering about the stench. As Conan tries to explain to his BFF just what happened, and again, that's barbarian friends forever, they both hear a rustling behind the very same wall hanging from whence the now-burning monster had come. Conan, tired of all the lurking and creeping and hiding behind curtains, throws his sword into the rustling wall hanging and spears himself a priest. The two deduce that the priest had been creeping back there behind the curtain and using magic to put a sleep spell on them. With the priest dead, however, 
the Barbarian Bros feel fully pumped and energized. We want to pump you up. And not a moment too soon as there sounds a scream of terror from Ayla's room. Fafnir breaks down the door as he and Conan rush into the room, and they're momentarily taken aback by the sight that greets them. A hulking man-bat creature in little lavender trunks holding Ayla in its arms, and not in a romantic way. Fafnir, more than a little jealous that Conan not only got to kill the priest, but fought and killed a different monster as well, bids his BFF to stand aside. Let me get him! Let me get him! Fafnir attacks the beast, and the two really get into it. The mighty ginger warrior hacking away with his axe as if he's trying to fell a tree. Conan, in the meantime, watches on, holding a frightened Ayla in his muscly arms. Soon the man-bat has had enough, and so it escapes through the once-hidden secret entrance into Ayla's chambers, running away as fast as its little lavender trunks can take it. Fafnir, his bloodlust up, gives chase. Conan, still holding Ayla in his arms, makes ready to follow, to help his BFF, but Ayla forbids it, telling Conan, That way leads to Gothen's black hell! Fafnir will never return, and I don't want you to share his fate. Gothen, if you recall, is the dark sorcerer who banished Ayla to the other side of the lagoon in the previous issue. He's all kinds of evil and practices dark magic, and is probably the guy that sent the monsters to kill Conan, Fafnir, and Ayla. Despite Ayla's protests, however, the mighty Thude Sumerian, knowing that your bro always comes first, heaves Ayla onto her bed before following Fafnir into the creepy tunnel, shouting back at Ayla, I have a man's work to do. Soldiers rush into the room, thinking that something might be amiss due to all the screams and such, and Ayla, proving that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, orders them to pursue Conan and Fafnir down the tunnel and to kill them both. Meanwhile, after running through a dizzying array of tunnels, Conan comes upon an underground temple. Thinking that the temple is probably where Gothen does all his evil stuff, the barbarian enters to find Gothen dead and Fafnir fighting with the man-bat in the little lavender trunks. The fight quickly ends when the man-bat falls into a well full of lava and Fafnir catches Conan up on what had been going down in the temple before Conan had arrived, which is simply that the man-bat killed Gothen and then they, the man-bat and Fafnir, started fighting. That's when Conan arrived. Okay, Devious, don't move. The bishop. <laughs> that one was just for me. Anyway, Ayla and her soldiers arrive ready to throw down when she notices that Gothen is dead. She begins to celebrate, knowing that with Gothen dead, she can finally be the true queen of Balsagath. Her celebrations are cut short, however, as the ground beneath them begins to quake and the temple starts falling apart all around them. Ayla is then squashed by a falling statue of Gothen's dark god, Golgoroth, and the barbarian bros, knowing which side the bread is buttered on, beat feet. As they make their way into the city, quakes are tearing everything apart and the people have all turned into crazy killing machines. Forced to fight their way out, Conan and Fafnir kill a lot of people until finally they make it out of the city and find the raft they had made to cross the lagoon in the previous issue. 
it's then that they suddenly notice that a volcano is erupting on the island and the two set sail. Except they're on a raft and it has no sail. Eventually, they cross paths with a Turanian ship and the captain, Yezdegerd, Prince of All Turin, allows them passage. But only if they go where he's going, which is to war, and only if they fight for him. Again, bread and butter and which side it's buttered and all that stuff. In other words, Conan and Fafnir ain't stupid. And as the issue ends, the Barbarian Brothers join up with the prince. Everybody out! Okay, so as we learned in the last episode, this is part two of a tale that was based on the original Robert E. Howard story, The Gods of Balsagoth. The Robert E. Howard version, however, isn't a Conan story. Instead, it is one of two stories Howard wrote about another barbarian character of his, an Irishman from the 11th century by the name of Turlough O'Brien, or Turlog. I, I may have been pronouncing it wrong. Since there is no U between the O and the GH at the end, then yeah, I guess it's Turlog. Anyway, in the comic book version, Conan takes the place of Turlog, while Fafnir takes the place of Athelstain the Saxon. Part two here in issue 18 was actually quite true to the original. They didn't make a lot of changes other than, of course, the names. And, and once you set that aside, it's pretty faithful. I mean, really, the main differences here are first in the original, we're told that a race of red-skinned savages, Howard's words, not mine. Anyway, a race of red-skinned savages have attempted many times to invade Balsagath and kill everyone there, but they have been stopped each time because they can't climb walls or, or some such. But as the original story ends, with the city collapsing and the earth heaving and all that, those very same red-skinned savages show up and just start killing everyone. And so Turlog and Athelstain have to fight through the people of Balsagath and the invaders to escape the island. The other big difference, of course, is that the original is much, much more violent, but then Robert E. Howard didn't have to worry about the Comics Code Authority. In fact, I probably really would have enjoyed the original story if I could have just gotten past the whole thing about how the two white guys on an island full of people of color were the only two that managed to escape the destruction of the island, and they only did so by slaughtering what I have to assume were hundreds and hundreds of red and brown people. I mean, the entire last third or so of the story is just Turlog and Athelstain chopping their way through the swarming mass of murderous Balsagoth citizens and the invaders. With issue 18 of the comic, though, it's not nearly as graphic because, again, the Comics Code Authority. And because I had read Howard's original, I couldn't help but read between the lines and assume that despite the lack of invaders, as Conan and Fafnir made their escape from the underground caverns and then the city, that they had killed hundreds and hundreds of people as well, mowing them down with sword and axe as if they were nothing more than stalks of wheat ready for harvest. So, Really, when it comes to talking about the issue and comparing that to the rest of the story, there's really not much more to say except, well, Turlog's weapon of choice is an axe, and Athelstain carries a huge sword, which, of course, it's reversed in the comic. Well, I mean, Conan's sword isn't huge, but 
Athelstane in the original story, he's like this giant of a man, which is why Fafnir is such a big dude as well. And in fact, there's a bit from the story that I recall, uh, the two of them, Turlog and Athelstane, they're down in the underground temple, shit's starting to break apart, and the queen has already died, and all of her soldiers are down there, led by a dude named Zomar. But there's this moment where a priest named Gelka points at Turlog and announces that he's bleeding because he had fought the monster up in the room with the fire pit and the monster clawed at his neck and he was still bleeding from the wounds. And because he's bleeding, that means he can't be a god because, all right, I guess I should explain a little further. In the original, both Turlog and Athelstane are wearing armor and the people of the island assume that the iron is their skin and that they're gods just like Ayla or in this case, Brunhild which is her name in the original story. But of course, none of them are gods. I'm a god. I'm not the god. Anyway, that's when the shit really hits the fan and the two have to chop their way through all of the people to escape. And Athelstane, well, here, let me just read you this passage and hope that my reading does justice to it because say what you will about Robert E. Howard, the man can write. And he's especially good at writing about violent acts. I mean. It's almost like poetry with this guy. He really paints a word picture. But uh, anyway, it, it goes like this. The priest's finger stabbed at the dried blood on Turlog's throat, and a wild roar went up from the throng. Dazed and bewildered by the swiftness and magnitude of the late events, they were like crazed wolves, ready to wipe out doubts and fear in a burst of bloodshed. Gelka bounded at Turlog, hatchet flashing, and a knife in the hand of a satellite licked into Zomar's back. Turlog had not understood the shout, but he realized the air was tense with danger for Athelstane and himself. He met the leaping Gelka with a stroke that sheared through the waving plumes and the skull beneath. Then half a dozen lances broke on his buckler, and a rush of bodies swept him back against a great pillar. Then Athelstane, slow of thought, who had stood gaping for the flashing second it had taken this to transpire, awoke in a blast of awesome fury. With a deafening roar, he swung his heavy sword in a mighty arc. The whistling blade whipped off a head, sheared through a torso, and sank deep into a spinal column. The three corpses fell across each other, and even in the madness of the strife, men cried out at the marvel of that single stroke. Like I said, the man has a way with words. He, he certainly does. In the end, Turlog and Athelstane escape and they make it to the beach. They don't hit the water with the crude raft, however. No, they find a bunch of boats sitting on the beach, long skull-decorated war canoes, which are what the invaders use to get onto the island. They take one and as they are about to get it out there into the water, they see out there on the horizon a ship in the distance. So into the boat. they get that canoe out there and they row like mad and they are able to flag down the ship, which is from Spain, and they are taken aboard. And just like in the comic, the ship was separated from their fleet in a storm and they are on their way to join their fleet to go off to war and the fellas agree to sign on. So yeah, the comic, at least this issue, did a pretty good job following the original. Most of what Roy Thomas has to say about this issue in his book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, volume one, has more to do with Gil Kane's decision to leave the book after just two issues and then Barry Windsor Smith's sudden desire to return. Unfortunately, what Roy 
doesn't really get into are the reasons why. With Gil Kane, the assumption is that despite how much he loved the character, there was just too much work to do when it came to penciling a single issue of a Conan comic. Roy actually claims to have been told later that Gil had said to someone at some point that Roy expected him to do, quote, a goddamn epic every issue, end quote, which Roy admits was true. Roy felt that Conan deserved an epic every single issue, and he expected not only himself to write one, but the artist to draw one. And he does also admit that, yeah, for the writer, it's a little bit easier. It doesn't take as long. But anyway, in regard to why Barry wanted to come back, Roy didn't have any answers at all. He really wanted to make the point, however, that it was Gil Kane's choice to leave and that it wasn't until after Gil let Roy know that he was leaving that Barry let Roy know that he wanted to come back. Roy was adamant that he would never have pushed Gil off the book so that Barry could come back. He would never have done that to Gil or any artist, especially not for an artist who had left the book once already and may do so again. However, when Gil announced that he was leaving and then Barry announced that he wanted back in, it just seemed like kismet, you know, serendipity, all that crap. And, and so, yeah, that's what happened. I mean, I don't know if there was like this big hubbub from readers at the time or if rumors were flying around that Roy kicked Gil off the book to bring Barry back, but I have to assume there was, or at least Roy thought there was. And that's why he really focused on that for this particular chapter of the book. He does go on to say that he did actually have the power to remove an artist and replace them with another, or at least he did by the time that this issue was being put together because Stan Lee was promoted to publisher and Roy then was promoted to Stan's old spot as editor-in-chief. And in fact, if you look at the first page in this issue, you'll see that Roy is listed in the credits as writer slash editor. There's not a lot more that I want to say that is in regard to the behind the scenes stuff, except to point out that since Turlog and Athelstain ended their story on board a Spanish ship and on their way to war, Roy decided that Conan and Fafnir would have to do the same. And that meant sailing east with Prince Yezdegerd. And that also means no Argos for Conan. I'm just going to have to get used to that. Looking back over the issue, however, let's uh, let's talk about my favorite bits in a new segment I'm calling Stephen's, Stephen's favorite, favorite bits. bits. Okay, so let's start with the cover. We have Conan crouched in front of Kiri or Ayla, protecting her from the thing in the temple. And while the thing is in the foreground, we see it from behind. And there on the floor next to the thing is Conan's sword just out of reach. So while Conan is trying to protect Kiri or Ayla or whatever you want to call her, he's also trying to reach his sword. It's a nice looking cover. I really like this cover. It's actually, it's a nice looking cover. I really quite enjoy it. It's penciled by Gil Kane with inks by the great John Ramita. Well, actually in his book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, volume one, Roy says that the cover was drawn by John Ramita with Gil Kane. So I guess that's what I'm going to go with. I'll also point out real quick that while Gil penciled both this issue and the previous issue, we did have two different inkers. Ralph Reese was the inker for issue 17, 
And Dan Adkins is the inker on this one. And I just have to say, these are two issues that really do prove what a difference an inker can make on a book. Because while it still looks like Gil Kane in each issue, the art in issue 17 is more fluid and rounded. While here in issue 18, it's more angular, lots of straight lines, almost severe lines and corners and such. So yeah, an inker really can make a difference on a book. And Roy says that he likes Dan Adkins as an inker. He likes him a lot, but he does prefer the job that was done by Ralph Reese in issue 17 over what Dan Adkins did in issue 18. And I think I have to agree with Roy. What about you folks, Ralph or Dan, Stephen or else at gmail.com. That email is in the show notes. Getting into the book, let's look at page six, panel four. First off, the whole top row of panels, four of them in all, they are all great. Conan fighting sleep as this creature comes creeping up on him. In Howard's original story, as this is happening, Turlog sees the creature as a dream until it's just about ready to strike. And that's what they're doing here in this Conan issue as well. And I think it's a really great bit, but especially the look on that monster's face in panel four there. To me, the monster actually looks a little afraid. Like this is the first time it's done anything like this, you know, creep up on a guy and kill him. And it's a bit nervous or maybe knowing that as this thing is creeping up there on Conan, that there's another dude hiding behind the curtain, working his magic, making Conan sleepy. And this monster knows that if Conan wakes up or snaps out of it, that Conan's going to kill him. And it's super nervous about the whole thing. He's just worried that at any moment, Conan's going to wake up. Or I'll give you one last theory on why the monster looks the way he looks. This isn't the monster's first time. This guy has done this dozens of times, but he's screwed it up each and every time. And so this is his last chance. Gothen sent it to kill Conan and told it that this is your last chance. You screw this up and you can go work for some other dark sorcerer. So that look there on the monster's face is, again, it's a nervous fear. Like in his head, he's going, boy, I sure hope I don't screw this one up. I'd sure hate to disappoint Mr. Gothen again. What do you think? What do you see there in that monster's face there on page six, panel four? Let me know, Stephen or else at gmail.com. Another one of my favorite bits is the reveal of the man bat thing on page nine. First off, it looks creepy as hell, but the look on its face is less, I'm going to kill this lady, kill her and eat her up. And more, you come around here often, you know, like he's some smarmy creep hitting on her in a bar. And (laughs) the lavender trunks, come on, that only completes the image. Seriously, it looks like he's wearing a diaper. And frankly, I think that might be even creepier than the monster itself. I'm not sure why. It just is. It just is. The battle, however, between Fafnir and the man-bat thing over those next couple of pages is just freaking great. I love seeing Fafnir get his moment like this because I love to see my fellow gingers shine. And the fact that Fafnir's all like, Oh, hell no, Conan. You already fought and killed a monster. It's my turn, yo. I love it. I love it so much. Moving on, uh, page 12. I, I think it's page 12. When Conan throws Ayla onto her bed, she's so contorted 
that I'm surprised that she didn't break her neck. Just look at that. Take a moment to look at that. It looks like she's going to break her neck when she hits that bed. I, I, I'm not sure why Gil decided to draw it that way. I mean, I suppose she would be kind of contorted being thrown like that, but still doesn't look safe. But then that takes us to the last bit that I wanted to point out. It's there on the last page when Prince Yezdegerd tells Conan and Fafnir that basically they can join up with him or swim home. There's this very sitcom-y moment there in panel six where the two look at each other and they both go, well, it just feels like an ending to a sitcom, right? You know, like they both go, well, and then everything freezes and the credits roll. Anyway, those were my favorite bits. What about you? Send me an email, stevenorelse at gmail.com. And again, that address is in the show notes. And with that out of the way, not out of the way, it sounds like I'm just trying to breeze past it. But with that moment done, with my favorite bits over, let's do some listener feedback. All right, our first bit of feedback comes from over there on Blue Sky. It's from Slangword Scott, and he says, I am behind on my podcast listening, but I just listened to episode nine of Hither Came Conan, and I want to thank you for addressing Robert E. Howard's racism. I love the Conan comics, but it has been hard to read some of them, particularly Veil of Lost Women. I think Roy... And the other comics writers have tried very hard to thread the needle, but it's not an easy task. I made the decision to forego reading many of the original Howard Pro stories rather than find myself unable to enjoy any Conan. Yeah, um, that's kind of a tough choice to make, isn't it? I mean, in my shoes, of course, I'm doing a, a Conan podcast, so I feel like I had to read all of the Robert E. Howard Conan stories. And it it wasn't until I was probably three quarters of the way through that it really, you know, the, the racism from Howard really kind of took hold. And it was Veil of Lost Women that finally knocked me over the edge, basically, and made me go out there and do some research. Because Veil of Lost Women, I, I, I think I said it in episode nine, and I keep saying that I do plan on doing an episode about it. And, and I do, I just haven't, I don't know, I've just, I just haven't had the energy to do so. But Veil of Lost Women is almost a white supremacist male power fantasy. And I really should go into more explanation by what that on, you know, on what that means, but I think I'll save it for when I talk about the the story and I will. And when I did read it and it just kind of blew me away and I thought, wow, he is he's quite racist. This is a very racist story. I wondered if anybody would have even wanted to adapt Veil of Lost Women. And sure as shit, Roy Thomas did. Roy and Buscema, very late in the run, somewhere in the, the hundreds, actually just checking on it. It looks like it was issue 104. And I looked at the issue and it's, it's not great. It is not great. So yeah, I do plan on talking about this at some point in the future. I need to get on it. Uh, I keep talking about how I have been planning a, a relaunch of my Patreon, a, a relaunch and a rebranding. And, and I'm trying to put a lot of bonus episodes together, you know, get them kind of in the can before I do anything so that 
if you do decide to join up and, you know, join one of the tiers, especially the tier that will give you bonus episodes, that I've got bonus episodes to give. And the plan with Conan is to, because I've said it before, I don't like creating content that only certain people get to listen to. You know, if I'm going to take the time to create it, I want everybody to hear it. But I also want exclusive stuff for the Patreon. So the plan is to create bonus episodes that will go up onto the Patreon and stay there for anywhere from 30 to 90 days and then eventually release it over on the main feed. And I think what I'm going to do here in this last week is what really gave me the idea because y'all know that last week there wasn't an episode. I just didn't have the time to get one put together. But if I had a bunch of bonus episodes in the can that had already been released out on the Patreon that had been sitting there for 30 to 90 days, then if I have a week that I'm falling behind, I don't have time to record something or put something together, then that's when one of those bonus episodes can move from the Patreon to the public. And Veil of Lost Women will be one of those, as well as the Dark Horse Conan books. And I'm even thinking about watching some of those Conan cartoons, if, if, if you know what I'm talking about. But yeah, Veil of Lost Women. Whew, that's not a good one. Not a good one at all. And I have a lot to say about it. But Slang word, Scott, thank you so much for the feedback. And I, you know, I completely understand if you don't want to read through all the Robert E. Howard stories, because yeah, there, there's a couple of them in there that just, it, it's not going to endear the man to you at all. Our next bit of feedback is an email from Dylan. And he says, Hey, Stephen, I've enjoyed the last couple episodes. I really liked how you cross-referenced the original text version of Balsagath and gave your highlight reel of your favorite parts in the latest Titan stuff. I think this is a good direction rather than the literally frame-by-frame analysis of the comics. I'm really enjoying your synthesis of the various texts, and I think you're on to something. Keep up the good work, Dylan. Yeah, I've kind of changed up a bit the way I've been doing things here and in some of the other shows that I've been recording mainly because the synopsis that I put together for each of these issues, originally they were supposed to be kind of this brief, quick one to two minute synopsis that gave you a very basic idea of what happened in the issue. But as I've been writing them out, I've been getting pretty, well, I've been hitting all of the beats. I've been telling you pretty much everything that's happened in the issue. So then for me to go back and then go over the issue again in my own words, just seems kind of, kind of silly. And so I'm trying this whole, these are some of my favorite bits kind of thing. And I'm finding it a bit easier for me. I don't know what y'all think about it, but I think that's the way that's the, well, that's the direction I'm going to be going in for the foreseeable future. And we'll just see, you know, that's the thing about these kind of shows. They, the change up on you, but thanks for the email, Dylan. I really appreciate it. I love it when people reach out to me, especially when they have ideas that might possibly make the show a little bit better. Our last bit of feedback comes by way of Instagram from Sleepy Reader. And he says, had a fantastic time listening to episode number 21. That's Conan issue number 17. And wanted to make some minor comments. I think Fafnir indeed counts as a barbarian from the point of view of the Hyborian kingdoms. Samiria, Iser, Vanir, and Pix are all lumped into that category, I believe. I super enjoy the way you managed to weave in and out of the original story and the comics adaptation. I've read this Gil Kane story in several places and love the art, but my brain keeps placing it 
in another sequence outside of the Windsor Smith run. So I was wondering if you had any trouble switching between the two very different artists the way I did. Thanks again for producing a podcast I look forward to every week. So let me first respond to your barbarian point. It's funny because as I was rereading this issue and putting the notes together, that's when I got this feedback on Instagram and rereading issue 18, they do actually refer to Fafnir as a barbarian. And so I kind of was like, hey, all right, I got it right. He is a barbarian. And then I get sleepy readers feedback here. And so, yeah, very much barbarian, barbarian bros all the way, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, As far as if I had trouble switching between the two artists, not really, um, but only because I'm reading it in a collection and was able to look ahead and see what was coming. I have to imagine, had I been reading this back in the 70s as the issues were coming out, being the kind of person that I am, I don't spend a lot of time hunting down what's coming up in the books I read. And being that it's super easy to do that today over how it was back in the 70s, I would have had no clue at all that the artist was changing from issue 16 to issue 17. And yeah, I have to imagine it would have thrown me off. But knowing that it was coming, I, I didn't I didn't really have any problems with it. And it is kind of weird that you get this two-issue Gil Kane story, and then you go back to Barry Windsor Smith. And I don't know, I have to imagine that folks at the time maybe Well, first of all, maybe they explained it all in the letters column. I don't know. They probably did. None of the letters are being printed in the collection that I'm reading, so I don't know. But otherwise, I'd have to assume that people just thought that as what would happen back then, the regular artist needed a couple of months off to prepare for the next few issues, or they went on vacation, or maybe they thought, oh, no, like I I mentioned Earlier in their episode, maybe people thought, oh, Royce kicked Barry off and brought his buddy Gil Kane in and boo, boo. And then Barry comes back and, oh, they heard our shouts of anger. But I don't think that is 100% correct either, because based on what I read in Roy's book, Gil's two issues were quite popular. In fact, this is the point, it seems, that the numbers really started to go up. And they just, by when Barry comes back on with the next issue, they just keep going up more and more and, and the book starts really becoming popular. But thank you so much for the feedback, Sleepy Reader. Uh, I'll try to remember to include a link to your YouTube channel in the show notes. Sleepy Reader has a YouTube channel in which he's talking about comics and we all like comics. So I urge you to go check that out. As for the rest of you, if you'd like to write in and provide feedback, ask questions, or whatever you want to do, there are, of course, a variety of ways to do it. Just from seeing the feedback we got this week, you can reach out through Instagram, you can reach out through freaking Blue Sky Threads, Spoutable Twitter. We even have a voice line. The main avenue of feedback, however, is the email, stephenorels at gmail.com. The voice line is 785-318-6673, and you can use that voice line to send me texts or even leave a voicemail that I could play out during a show. Heck, if you've got your own setup, if you've got a mic, if you do a podcast, or if you just have access to a memo app on your phone and you want to record some feedback and email it to me at stevenorelse at gmail.com, provided it's not like 
10, 15, 20 minutes long. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it up on the episode. Beyond that, I want to remind everybody that if you are listening to the show either on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or really anywhere that allows you to rate the show, please go do that. I know that with Apple Podcasts, the more ratings we have, the easier it is for people to find us. We're still sitting at 10. I want to try to get to 15 by the end of the year. I don't believe I've ever had a show that's had more than 10 ratings. And I know that there's a secret number. Everybody talks about this secret number. Once you get a certain number of ratings, then your show starts being put out there on certain algorithms. I don't, I don't know if any of that's true, but if you haven't yet left a rating, please go do so. If you listen through YouTube, make sure you like each of the episodes. I am slowly moving the episodes from the Stephen or else YouTube channel to the Hither Came Conan YouTube channel. I had no idea the show would become as popular as it has become. And, the, and, and, and that's why I started it on YouTube over on the Stephen or else YouTube channel. I didn't want to create a whole new YouTube channel for a show that fizzled. And this has done the exact opposite. So I'm slowly moving the videos over there. Probably should have just done that in the first place. But that's the way the uh, bread is buttered, to use the saying that I used earlier that I just made up. I don't think that's a real saying. I think I just made that up. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, before I go, I have a question for all y'all. As you know, this episode was supposed to come out last week. Due to other commitments, I couldn't put an episode out last week, and I want to try to let people know. I want to try to let all y'all know when I'm not able to get an episode out on time, and typically what I do is I have, of course, the Hither Came Conan Twitter account, at Conan Podcast, which if you're not following and you're on Twitter, you should probably follow that Twitter feed. I also have the Steven Says Stuff newsletter. And so I used both of those this time to inform people that the episode wasn't coming out or that it would be late. And I guess I just want to kind of know what's the best place. I think, honestly, answering my own question, because I'm doing this whole reboot, relaunch thing with my Patreon, you can now join somebody's Patreon for free. You, of course, won't get any of the exclusive content, but when it comes to, for example, me letting listeners know that an episode will be late or may possibly not even come out that week. If I put it on the Patreon and you're a member of the Patreon, free or not, you'll get an email. So there's a small part of me that's thinking of retiring the Stephen Says Stuff newsletter and doing everything over on the Patreon. I don't know. I haven't quite decided. I'd like your feedback on that. If you get the Stephen Says Stuff newsletter, which alerts you every time one of my episodes is out and is also there for me to provide you with any bit of news or information, which is something I can do over at the Patreon at the same time. And you know, if, if, if you're completely against me retiring the Steven says stuff newsletter, let me know, let me know. Cause right now for me, it's just one extra step whenever I have to, whenever I put a new episode out. So yeah, a little homework for you. Let me know what you think. Join me back here next time as we look at Conan the Barbarian number five from Titan Comics. This is the beginning of the second story arc of the new Titan run. It's called Thrice Marked for Death. That's the new story arc. And we have a new penciler this time around, Doug Braithwaite. I, for one, am really looking forward to digging into that one and 
seeing what's going on with Conan there in the Titan universe. Until then, folks, keep your swords close by and never stop treading them jeweled thrones. And hey, do me a favor. Be nice to each other. Hither Came Conan is a Stephen R. Else production. Find more podcasts at stephenorelse.com. Questions and comments can be directed to stephenorelse at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, and Instagram by searching for at stephenorelse. And join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Did Conan fight? Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. Following the events of the previous issue, Kiri. Following. Can't even get the first word out. The three children. The three. Change as the two mighty feud warriors talk about drink. Talk about drink. Let's talk about this drink we're having here, Conan. It's kind of nice. It's bubbly with an aftertaste of cherry and vanilla. I believe it's called a cherry coke there, Fafner. I think that's what you're drinking. Well, I believe you're right, Conan. I believe you're right. A beastly monster creeps up. Beastly monster. Yeah, I'm going to keep it in. I don't care. Maybe I'll change it. I don't know. We'll see. And they're momently. Ah, momently. Gothen, if you recall, is the dark sorcerer who banished Ayla to the other side of Looking back over the looking back over the issue. Just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. Enough talk!